pressure The finest atomic ship That ever died for the sea Each man on board was a volunteer Was there cause he chose there to be Every man jack on board was a hero Every man jack on board there was brave Every man jack on board was a hero Each man risked a watery grave It's the 10th of April, 2013 And you're listening to Disastercast, Episode 7 Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, the podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. If you can hear birds in the background of this recording, it's because I'm visiting Australia. We're teaching at Australian National University in Canberra this week, and in Adelaide next week. After that I'll be up in Brisbane for a week before returning to the UK, where hopefully spring will have finally arrived. If any Australian listeners would like to catch up, or even be interviewed for the show, please do drop me a line. As you might guess from the introduction, this week we'll be looking at the loss of the USS Thresher, 50 years ago today. Then we'll be talking about hazard identification. In the final segment, we'll consider the system safety aspects of Star Wars. April 10 marks the 50th anniversary of the loss of the USS Thresher, a nuclear attack submarine operated by the United States. The Thresher sank during sea trials, with 129 men on board, making it the worst ever submarine disaster. Before talking about the causes, here's a quick rundown of the sequence of events. USS Thresher was the lead vessel in a class of nuclear-powered attack submarines. As is typical for the lead boat in a class, it spent its early years in trials and evaluation. It was then taken into Portsmouth Shipyard for a refit. The purpose of this refit was to examine the state of the submarine systems after early operations, and to correct any defects. Thresher was recertified on April 8, 1963, and went to sea on April 9, in company with the submarine rescue vessel Skylark. After two shallow dives on April 9, on the morning of April 10, Thresher began a deep dive trial. This was a slow dive in a spiral around the rescue vessel, down to a depth of about 1,300 feet. The shallow dives were conducted in water where the Skylark could have rescued personnel from Thresher if it ended up on the bottom. However, Skylark could only conduct rescues down to 850 feet. The deep test dive, by necessity, had to be in water too deep for a rescue. As Thresher approached 1300 feet, several garbled messages were received by Skylark on the underwater radio. Experiencing minor difficulty, have positive angle, attempting to blow, will keep you informed, 900. We will never know exactly what happened during the last minutes of the USS Thresher. 
The only sources of information we have are these messages, trial data from before the accident, sonar records, and experiments conducted afterwards. We don't have any direct physical evidence of equipment failure. What's generally believed is that there was an electrical failure which caused shutdown of the nuclear reactor powering the boat. Unlike land-based nuclear reactors, there is no truly fail-safe state for a submarine reactor. Shutting down the reactor protects against a runaway nuclear reaction, but it also takes away the main propulsion system. This is a problem because nuclear submarines typically rely on propulsion to reach the surface in an emergency. At the same time as the reactor was out of service, the USS Thresher also had negative buoyancy. The boat was sinking, and the only way to drive it to the surface, the nuclear-powered propulsion system, was shut down by the automatic safety systems. This is where we enter the realm of guesswork. The most widely accepted theory, and the one that was adopted officially, is that there was a single cause of both of these problems. A leaking pipe caused flooding, making the boat sink, at the same time as it shorted the electrical system, making it impossible to drive the submarine to safety. This official theory is a little controversial, with at least one source claiming that a leak would not have been reported as a minor difficulty. Whatever the cause, the submarine sank below the depth it was designed to withstand and was crushed by water pressure. It took less than 10 minutes from the initial problem to the destruction of the submarine. Death would have been instantaneous for everyone on board when the submarine imploded. 50 years later, there are lessons from the Thresher disaster which are still highly relevant. Why did the investigators believe that a pipe leak caused the shutdown? Because the pipework was known to be unreliable. During USS Thresher's most recent overhaul, ultrasound, at that time a new technique, was used to inspect the silver brazing used to join the pipes. Using ultrasound, it was found that a large number of joints were faulty. Rather than accept this evidence that the brazing was unreliable, ultrasonic testing was discontinued. This sort of decision was echoed by NASA when they discontinued quantitative safety analysis because the numbers were unacceptably low. By the oil rig Deepwater Horizon, when failed cement tests were disregarded as false alarms. It seems obvious, but apparently needs to be said often and loudly. Don't bother conducting tests unless you're willing to listen to the results. Safety engineering is very similar to science. You don't investigate to confirm what you already know to be true. Instead, you test to try to disprove your current theory. You don't have to be a safety engineer or an experimental physicist to understand this. You just need to know how to read a project schedule. Look at the amount of time allocated for safety analysis and testing, then look to see what's next on the schedule. There should be a large chunk of time allocated to fixing the problems that you're going to find. Too many project plans assume that testing will find no problems, totally defeating the purpose of the testing. USS Thresher is not the first disaster, or the last, to be reconstructed from test evidence.
There are pieces of the Mars Polar Lander scattered over the surface of Mars. We know why this happened, because after the accident, they completed the testing that they should have done before launch. There's no physical evidence of the O-ring failure that destroyed Space Shuttle Challenger, just memos beforehand complaining that they hadn't been tested at low launch temperatures, and ruminations afterwards. When I'm describing accidents, which necessarily involve stories of human fallibility, I always like to highlight the people who did something right. The ground crew who ran towards the burning Hindenburg, the engineers who scuba-dived in pitch-black water under Chernobyl, the firefighters who entered the North Tower of the World Trade Center after the South Tower had already collapsed. Unfortunately, we don't know the stories of those who tried during the last 10 minutes to save the USS Thresher. We do know what we need to do to stop a USS Thresher happening again. A hazard is the basic management unit of system safety. Almost all safety activities throughout a system life cycle have, as a precondition, a list of the hazards that need to be managed. For each hazard we may undertake risk assessment, select mitigations, specify safety requirements, perform detailed causal analysis, verification and testing, and manage safety through life. All of this presupposes that we have identified the right set of hazards to begin with. Any hazards that we fail to identify create holes running right through our safety life cycle. How often does this happen? A 2012 study by Neil Barton found that around 20% of major accidents can be blamed on failures of the hazard identification process. There's a subtle but important point to be made about this statistic though. It tells us what proportion of accidents involve poor hazard identification, but it doesn't actually tell us how often hazard identification is done badly. Other research, though, gives us this information. A 2006 study of construction projects found that less than 10% of hazard identifications were complete, with typically only 60-80% to of the hazards which should have been identified actually being identified. This matches other research into particular hazard identification techniques where individual methods find between 20 and 80% of all of the known hazards. Put simply, hazard identification is often done very badly and bad hazard identification makes a significant contribution to actual accidents. To understand why completeness is such a problem for hazard identification, let's play a little game. I have in my hand a Mark V widget. Can you, in principle, tell me all of the hazards for this device? Probably not, because you don't know what a Mark V widget is. So, I give you all of the design information for a Mark V widget. Can you now tell me all of the hazards? The answer is still no, because the hazards don't just come from what a Mark V widget is, but from how it is used. So I give you the widget, the design information, and a crystal ball which tells you exactly how and in what environments the Mark V widget will be operated and maintained. 
Can you now tell me all of the hazards? In principle, yes, you can. However, can you prove to me that your list of hazards is complete? There's the problem. Even if you have a perfect list of hazards, neither you nor anyone else can tell for sure whether the list is complete. Of course, it's easy enough to prove that the list is incomplete. We can do that simply by finding a hazard that isn't on the list. So, if we can never prove that we've identified all of the hazards, where does that leave us? We need to have confidence that our list of hazards is good enough. We'll end up using weasel words like reasonably complete or to the best of our knowledge. Our argument to back up these words will have three pillars. The competence of the team identifying the hazards, the methods that we used, and the information that fed into these methods. Team problem solving is too big a topic for this episode. For now, let's just take as a given that hazard identification is the sort of problem where teams outperform individuals, as long as we get the team dynamics right. At a minimum, hazard identification teams must include designers, maintainers, users, technology specialists, and safety practitioners. One of the most common mistakes is to include representatives of these people rather than the people themselves. Your operations manager is typically not an operator, they're a manager. Your design team lead is not necessarily a specialist in the technology being used to build the system. In terms of methods, there are three classes of techniques available for hazard identification. These are experience, checklists, and structured brainstorming. Experience involves selecting one or more existing systems or projects similar to the new system and adopting or adapting the hazards from these systems. Since every project contains some novel element, experience will never be quite enough. Part of the method involves a gap analysis showing where our system diverges from experience and what new hazards this novel component may bring. Checklists come in two flavours, generic and industry-specific. Generic checklists are sets of prompts to apply to your new system. The archetypal example is a list of energy types. It's very hard to kill someone without applying energy to them, so thinking through all the types of energy present in a system is a great systematic way to identify hazards. The two ways to kill someone without applying energy are to poison them or to deprive them of something they need to live, such as oxygen. When I'm using an energy checklist, I always include toxins and suffocation, sort of as honorary types of energy. Another common generic checklist is a list of operational phases. Hazard identification often misses phases such as maintenance, cleaning and recovery, so a checklist is a good way to address these possible omissions. Industry-specific checklists are very common in industries which have mature safety engineering community. For example, I'm aware of a couple of very good rail and automotive checklists. The thing that experience and checklists have in common is that they're very good at identifying things from the past, but very poor at identifying genuinely new hazards. That's where structured brainstorming comes in. 
Example techniques in this space include energy trace and barrier analysis and action error analysis. There are a few more techniques which are sometimes claimed to be hazard identification, but in practice they're used to flesh out the causes of known hazards rather than to directly identify hazards. Techniques such as fault tree analysis and HAZOP fall into this space. Of the three classes of techniques, which one should you use? The available evidence strongly suggests that you should use more than one. Applying a single technique net you between 60 and 80% of the hazards you'll find by applying two techniques. A common strategy is to choose one method for primary hazard identification and another method for review or validation of the main exercise. To finish, let's just reflect back on those three pillars. An appropriate set of people using appropriate techniques with the appropriate information. This tells us what we need to record from the hazard identification. A list of hazards is by itself not a good enough record. It tells you nothing about its own trustworthiness. A decent hazard identification report must include the people involved, the information they were given, the process that was followed, and the records of the process actually being executed. For something out of the blue this week, I'm going to recount part of an accident analysis that Mark Nicholson and I performed on the second Death Star. For those of you who aren't fans of the Star Wars movie series and haven't seen the movies, then I'm afraid you're just going to have to do some background watching before the rest of this episode makes sense. There were two vessels involved in the accident in question, the Death Star and the Super Star Destroyer Executor. The Death Star was the second platform of that name. It commenced construction after the destruction of the first Death Star at the Battle of Yavin in 0 ABY. The Death Star was spherical in construction, with a diameter of 900 kilometres. The main power supply was a hypermatter reactor. Propulsion was via ion drives, although these were not operational at the time of the Death Star's destruction. In addition to the main armament, a superlaser, the Death Star carried turbo lasers and tractor beams for point defence, and small craft docking and rearming facilities. Onboard accommodation was provided for up to 15 million crew and civilian contractors. The accident occurred whilst the Death Star was still under construction, in orbit around the second moon of the gas giant Endor. All weaponry was fully operational, but the shields, ion drives, and portions of the superstructure had not yet been assembled and commissioned. The Executor was the lead vessel of a class of capital ships for the Imperial Navy. SSD Executor was approximately 20 kilometres in length and was built from titanium-reinforced steel. Her primary armament consisted of several thousand turbo-laser batteries and ion cannons. Defences included laser batteries and deflector shield generators. Here's the timeline for the accident. The Battle of Endor was a planned counter-terrorist operation involving coordination between the Death Star, the Imperial Battle Fleet and ground forces on the second moon of Endor, known as the Forest Moon. In response to the asymmetrical warfare tactics employed by terrorist forces, 
The operation made use of carefully planted misinformation to expose the terrorist forces to a set-piece battle. The plan for the operation called for a shield around the Death Star, generated from a bunker on the forest moon, to be maintained constantly. Unfortunately, this shield failed due to catastrophic battle damage to the bunker, approximately 30 minutes after the main phase of the operation began. Subsequently, multiple small craft evaded both the fixed and mobile defences of the Death Star, and entered the unfinished portion of the superstructure. At approximately the same time, the SSD executor suffered battle damage to the primary command deck, losing attitude and propulsion control. The Death Star was unable to manoeuvre to avoid the path of the executor, and the bow of the executor struck the Death Star. It is believed that most of the casualties on board the executor occurred during this collision. The small craft within the Death Star superstructure fired on the reactor, and both vessels were eventually destroyed by the explosion of the reactor core. Timing for subsequent events is more uncertain. Eyewitness reports suggest that there were survivors alive directly below the Death Star's orbit on Endor for several hours following the explosion. Some theories suggest that portions of the Ewok population residing on the far side of Endor may have survived for several months before radiation and nuclear winter effects killed them. Despite the availability of numerous Imperial and Rebel platforms in the region, no attempted evacuation appears to have occurred at any time, resulting in total genocide of the Ewoks. Many defence organisations exclude operational losses from their safety programs. Whilst the incident occurred during active operations, it cannot be dismissed as enemy action, though. The puny rebel fleet should have been no match for the power of a fully operational battle station. This accident could be naively analysed as a technical design problem due to the exposed reactor core, as human error due to allowing the small band of plucky heroes within the protective shield, as enemy action, the rebel attack, or as poor safety processes, failing to learn the lessons from the first Death Star. In fact, the accident was all of these things. One of the interesting features is that the organisations involved had very different safety cultures, but both cultures were dysfunctional. The absence of a just culture within the Imperial fleet discouraged staff from raising concerns. Vital reporting mechanisms which could have alerted senior management to the systematic problems, were choked by the bureaucracy. The rebel fleet, on the other hand, was overly reliant on heroic individuals to achieve organisational goals. This ad hoc approach to management achieved short-term effectiveness at the expense of addressing systemic risk and longer-term fallout from their actions. In both organisations, trade-offs were made between safety operational effectiveness and project schedules, without due regard for the level of risk involved in the decisions. In particular, the visible importance that senior management placed on meeting deadlines overshadowed all other considerations. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. If you enjoy listening to the show, please do tell a friend or click the stars on iTunes. The equipment costs of DisasterCast are fully funded thanks to I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here.
But the bigger the audience, the easier it is to justify spending time producing the show. The introduction was by the Kingston Trio. The theme tune is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer. <laughs>